Second Samuel chapter 7, reading from verse 1, on page 310. This is God's word. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David. This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then tell my servant, David. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be a ruler over my people, Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I've cut off your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the name since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of man, with floggings inflicted by man, but my love will never be taken away from him. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you, your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Amen. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, those verses that we read earlier. It's on page 330, if you've got one of the, <clears throat> no, 300 and, uh, 310, if you've got one of the Pew Bibles. And we're going to think about this passage together for a few minutes. I <clears throat> don't know what you thought whenever we read that passage a few minutes ago. I, <clears throat> I imagine that there are all sorts of parts of the Bible that we would acknowledge were uh, passages and, and chapters that had great significance. Uh, maybe uh, chapters like Psalm 23, Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. Uh, how, how precious and significant that chapter has been 
to so many people down through the generations. Maybe we can think of of chapters that are important because of what they tell us. So John chapter 3, for example, Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, that religious elite who who you might think had everything going for him, who is sort of closer to heaven than most of us, and yet Jesus says to him, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And that chapter, of course, contains the summary of the gospel that we also appreciate in John 3 and 16, for God so loved the world. So chapters like that are really, really important. Maybe chapter uh, 3 of Genesis, right at the beginning of the Bible, telling us how everything has gone wrong, explains to us who we are and what we're like and, and why we are the way we are, why our world is the way it is. All sorts of chapters that are really important that tell us uh, very significant things about the Christian message. But you might be surprised to hear that some people think that this chapter, chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, is one of the most important chapters of the Bible. Probably not immediately obvious to us whenever we've read it, but I hope that we're going to see that it brings together lots of really, really important themes that are right at the heart of the biblical story. Because this is a chapter that tells us what it is God is doing. You remember we've been working our way through Second Samuel recently. We've seen last time what God is like. We, we, we looked at that story of David bringing the ark into Jerusalem, the ark, that uh, box that was at the very heart of the tabernacle and the temple eventually, and, and was the symbolic representation of God's presence. So that whenever David, we saw last time, danced before the ark, he was able to be uh, talked about as dancing before the Lord. And uh, we find that, that, that it showed us in the whole story what God was like, that he was holier than we might imagine, but he was also more loving and gracious than we could ever hope for. And, and this is our God, isn't he? He's greater than we think, but he's also more gracious than we think. So, so these aspects of his character are really, really clearly seen. But, but the question then is, well, if this is what God is like, what is it that God is doing? What's he doing in the world? What's he doing now? And the answer comes in this chapter, and we see that he's building a family. He's building a people. We're going to call it a family. This is the big story that's in our news. You'll not see it on the headlines of the papers today. Uh, Brexit will eclipse it in the headlines this week. But when Brexit is long forgotten, and you might wonder, when on earth will that be? When Brexit is long forgotten, this will still be the story that goes ahead. If you're a Christian here today, you're part of this story. This is your story. If you're not yet a Christian, this can be a story that you are drawn into and become a part of. So what's God doing? He's building a family. That's what we're going to see. We're going to look at what happens. First of all, David has brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, as we saw last week. And uh, he wants this symbol of the presence of the Lord to be right at the heart of his new capital. New capital is Jerusalem. And he brings it in and he installs it in a tent in the city. Remember, this ark had accompanied the people of God from Sinai through the wilderness wanderings and so on. It had been at the heart of the tabernacle, which was a great movable sort of temple. It was a tent, but it was a sort of portable temple. And now the ark comes and rests in the very center of the city. And David says in verse 1 and 2, uh, here I am living in a prophet. Uh, sorry, he, he, through, 
through, he speaks to Nathan the prophet in verse 2. Here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Very natural reaction from David. David knows that God has blessed him. He's aware that God has done so much for him. And he feels it somehow just wrong that, that he has a, a beautiful palace. We saw that that was built last time. A beautiful palace. And, and yet the presence of the Lord, the, the, the the symbol of the presence of the Lord, is just in a tent. And Nathan is the prophet who will later speak to David at the time of Bathsheba. He says, yes, whatever you have in your mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Now, he's not speaking with prophetic authority at that point. It's a natural human reaction. He says, yes, yeah, of course, it's a good idea to, to build a, 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 a structure, a permanent place to put the ark into. Go ahead and do it. I'm sure the Lord is with you. But actually, sometimes the things that we, we sort of think make a lot of sense are, are not really what, what God intends us to do. And that was the case here. It's not easy to learn that, 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 that sometimes just our own wisdom doesn't really get us to where God wants us to get to. He needs to, to direct our steps and our thoughts. And Nathan needed to learn that. And so God speaks to Nathan that night. The content of that word from God is really the rest of the passage that we read from verses 5 to 16. And, and Nathan brings that message then to David. Nathan reported, verse 17, to David all the words of this entire revelation. So what, what do we see? What do we see about what God is doing? Well, three things. First of all, God is building a family. That's what we've said. God is building a family. David has in mind to build God a house, but God says in verse 11 to 16 that God is the one who will build a house for David. Look at what he says. The Lord declares to you, this is verse 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from his soul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So you think of what's going on here. There's a bit of a play in words. David wants to build God a house, a house of stones. And God says, no, 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 I'm going to be the one who's going to do the building. And I'm going to build you a house, but it's going to be a house in the sense of a family, a people, a dynasty. You know, you, you know that, that, that that word house, even in the English language, can carry all of those meanings. It can be a, a family home, but it can also be a family and especially it can be a family line, a dynasty. So whenever we speak about the, the royal family, we might speak about the house of Windsor. Now, David, you see, is only the second king. Saul's been the first king. Saul's cut off. There's no uh, line of Saul carrying on. 
And David might wonder, well, is that, is that what's going to happen to me too? Whenever things finish with me, is God just going to raise up another king from another family line? And, and, and here he learns, no, it will be one of his own offspring that will succeed him. God says that he is the one who will actually build a temple. That son, of course, is Solomon. He's not born at this stage, but he's the one who will construct the temple. And, and God's promise to David, however, goes on. This dynasty amazingly will never end. You see in verse 13, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, that's really confusing, isn't it? How do you get an eternal kingdom? How do you have a kingdom that never ends? Well, there are two ways if you think of it. One is that you have one king succeeding another king or a queen or whatever, uh, succeeding another one all the way down. And then you have an eternal dynasty. But the other way is that you have a king who reigns forever himself. And sort of both of those things happen here for a while. First of all, <clears throat> there's a period where one succeeds the next, and there's a series of kings, so that whenever there is a king in, in, for God's people, it is from the family line of David. But then, of course, Jesus arrives. And what does God say to Mary whenever the birth of Jesus is announced through Gabriel. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. You see how it's picking up this language and saying, now here is the eternal king. How can David's dynasty last forever? Because it leads to Jesus, whose reign never ends. And this is what God is working towards. What is he doing? He's building a family, a dynasty. Jesus is at its center. He is the ultimate king who will reign over his people. This is referred to as God's covenant with David. It was really a, a, a restating of the covenant with Abraham way back in Genesis 12. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. You notice that here, uh, God speaks to David and talks about him making his name great. It's just the same thing being restated. So what's God doing? He's building a family. There are those who come to see that Jesus is their king. There are those who, like Polycarp, bow to him and are determined to follow him. And this is what we are part of today. If you're a Christian, this is not just something where you say, well, do you know, isn't it great that Jesus has saved me? It's great that Jesus has saved you if you're a Christian. But, but you're part of a family, a dynasty that, that lasts forever. As you confess your sin, you see, and you say, I've been in rebellion against you. I've been going my own way and not yours. You're my king then you're part of this great story. Think of the thief on the cross. We often use him as an example of somebody who becomes a Christian right at the end of his life. What, how does he do that? How, what does he say to Jesus? He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. 
You see, God is building a family, a kingdom, a house. It's centered on Jesus, and we may enter into this family as we recognize God's eternal king. God's building a family. Second thing to say here is that God's family will know eternal and ultimate blessing. Because the question is, well, okay, I can enter into this family. Why should I? What would the point be? Well, here's one reason. There are all sorts of reasons, but here's one reason. Because God's family is where ultimate blessing and a eternal blessing is to be found. You notice how this chapter starts? The king and his people, David and his people, are enjoying rest, rest from conflict. After the king, chapter 7, verse 1, after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. Chapter 8 actually records some battles with the Philistines. We think it's probably out of a chronology that the author has brought this chapter a little bit forward to make a particular point. Uh, so this is the time whenever the battles have been won and rest is being enjoyed in the kingdom. It's the, it's the best time in the history of God's people. And it's pointing to a really important theme that runs right through the Bible from the very beginning of the Bible's story. Genesis 1, we know that God creates, and, and, and in the story, there's a particular little refrain that, that, <clears throat> that is given after each of the days of creation. He says, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day, or whatever it is. But there's one day that doesn't have that refrain. It's the seventh day, the Sabbath day. And that suggests that this Sabbath is an eternal day, it's a day without rest. It's a day that we are invited to trust in God and share in. It's as if God is saying, do you know what? There is a way for you to enter my everlasting peace and rest. It's picked up in Hebrews, uh, where, where uh, the author to the Hebrews says, uh, there is now a, a Sabbath rest. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So if you want to know what's wrong with the world, the Bible tells us <clears throat> we turned away from God, mankind has, and his invitation is there for us to enjoy his rest, but, but we've turned away from that, <clears throat> and mankind has been cursed with, as one person says, restless labor and peaceless conflict. Isn't that what we experience? Don't, don't you experience that in your own life? Never feel as if you're done. Restless labor. Peaceless conflict always seems to be a problem. Those relationships that, that are tricky, they're always so hard to manage, aren't they? Peaceless conflict. It's true at an individual level. It's true at a national level, international level. Restless labor, peaceless conflict. It's always there. Uh, there's something wrong desperately with the, the world. And yet here God says there is a way to know ultimate blessing where there is going to be rest and peace. What, what, a, what a good offer. Now, now here you see under God's king, there is rest and peace. Now, it's not perfect rest. God makes it clear that there's much more to come. Look at verse 10. I will provide a place for my people Israel, will plant them so that they can have a home of their own, and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning. 
and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. You see, God's saying, I've got more for your people, uh, for, for my people. Ultimately, this points forward to the end, to those verses in Revelation that we were reading at the beginning of our service, when this broken world will be wrapped up, and God's people will be wrapped up in God's perfect rest. It's a picture of perfect blessing. So if you find yourself here today and you go, don't even want to turn on the news at the minute. What a mess this world is in. And then if you're honest and you look a bit closer to home, you think, and, and do you know what? What, what a mess. What a mess I'm in. You've got to know that there's only one place that rest and peace can be found. It's, it's with God. It's, it's the God who promises eternal rest and peace. He is working to, what's God doing? He's, he's working to build a family, a family that will know perfect and full blessing. And he is the only way to experience this. If you're searching for rest and peace anywhere else but through Jesus Christ, you are going to be disappointed. But by being part of this family which God is establishing, then that's the way that ultimately you'll know it. Well, if somebody was to say, I think that's exactly what I need. I need to be part of this. I need to be part of that family. I realize there's no blessing anywhere else. But how, how do you deal with a God like this? How do you approach him? What's the whole fundamental basis on which I come to this God? Well, here's, here's the last thing. God's family is founded on grace. It's founded on grace. And by that, what we mean is that what really matters is not what we do for God, but it is what God graciously, generously does for us. That's, that's what matters. We, we see grace running right through this passage, don't we? David comes to God and he says, God, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to build you a house. And God gently sort of says, actually, David, you're not going to do something for me. And what really matters is what I'm doing for you. You see how God underlines that everything that David has comes from God? So, uh, in verse 8, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be a ruler over my people Israel. See, God says to him, David, remember what, what you were? <clears throat> you, you were just a shepherd, and now you're a king. How, how did you make that transition? Did you apply for the job? Did you send in a CV? No, no. I did that for you. You're just a shepherd. Now you're a king. Verse 9, I've been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut off all your enemies from before you. <clears throat> in other words, David, yes, you, you've won many battles to get where you are, but, but is that your doing? Was it not the case that, that I was with you? I was fighting for you? And also in verse 9, now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. So God's saying, now David, just let's, let's be clear about this. Will you make your name great? No, no, no. I'll make your name great. Do you see the direction? This is so important. It's from God to us, not from us to God. One of the things that we, we need to understand that whenever we read the Bible is that God doesn't need us. That's different from many of the pagan 
ways of thinking about God that were in the world in David's day and in the world in our day. Because you see, if you've got a pagan idea of God where God sort of needs you, then you can do stuff for him. Maybe it's worship. You can do stuff for him and you can put him in your debt and then he'll owe you. And you can therefore sort of manipulate him and control him a little bit. I'll do this for you. You better come through. But a God like this God, who doesn't need us, you can't bargain with him. Lots of people think in that pagan way. They think, this is how I should approach him. If I turn over a new leaf, and I try really hard to be the sort of person that I think he would want me to be, he'd be bound to receive me. But that's not how he works. He doesn't work by works. He works by grace. Some of the old hymn writers had this so well. How do we approach God? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. In other words, it's not what what we do, it's, it's what he has done through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's saying I'm not trusting in myself, but in what you've done for me. Hey, if we're Christians, we can think like this too, can't we? If, if I follow God really hard and really faithfully, he'll bless me, he'll, he'll keep me well, he'll, he'll make me prosperous, he'll, he'll answer my prayers. But we forget that, that God doesn't need us. What he does for us entirely overshadows what we might be able to do for him. David gets status and, and victory and, and wealth and glory, but it all comes as a gracious gift. So how do we come to this God? How do you become part of this family? It's by his grace. It's as we come and, and receive what he offers us, his gift to us. We don't come and say, look at what I've done, you owe me. We come saying, I have nothing, I'm empty here. But you're the king, and I'm trusting you. And from what I hear, you're a king who delights to give incredible blessing to those who have nothing and extend an incredible welcome to those who are undeserving. This is what God is doing. He's building a family, a family that will know ultimate blessing, a family that's founded in grace. Just a family that you're in. It's a family that you're in the presence of today because this church is part of God's family. But are you in it? Well, trust in this king. Acknowledge him as your king, and you can be. Let's pray together. Lord, it's, it's just humbling for us to think that here we are, caught up in something that you've been doing for thousands of years and planning for all of eternity. Lord, thank you that, that we've even heard of Jesus. There are millions in our world who haven't. Thank you that for so many of us here, you've helped us to see that, that no one else is Lord except Jesus. You've helped us to trust him as our king. Lord, for some of us, we're not there yet. Save us, Lord, from getting the order of things wrong. Save us from thinking that what really matters is what we do, 
help us to see that what we need more than anything else is what you have done in Jesus Christ. He's the king. We bow before him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.